0: I think she's Christian Smith from uh, Warwick University. He's a teaching fellow in the Department of English and Comparative Literary Studies. Um, His doctoral research was on the influence of of Shakespeare on Marx, Freud, and the Frankfurt School of Critical uh, Theorists. And in his postdoctoral work, he is investigating the possibility of this influence, uh, that the influence this may have. ...on the circle development sort of the, the dialectic. This Okay, um, the Hegelian bit that I promised in my abstract... ...is not in here because I don't have the space for it. Um, but if anybody has questions about that at the end, I'll, I'll answer them. After listening to his patients, we tell the tragic events... ...that led to their unbearable symptoms... Sigmund Freud had a sense about what was causing these symptoms. In essays written in the early to mid 1890s, essays replete with detailed case studies, Freud revealed that his patients were the victims of childhood sexual abuse. Perverse parents, relatives, older siblings, or their domestic workers, nurses, nannies, and maids, were the perpetrators. Freud constructed a nuanced theory of the temporal dimensions of abuse and symptom development. The scene of abusive stimulation was not understood as sexual by the young children, but was carried forward in time in their unconscious, and then, due to a re-triggering by an auxiliary scene after the onset of puberty, was re-read and re-experienced as sexually traumatic. Freud called this process nachträvichite, a process of carrying afterwardness. The struggle to repress the newly sexualized reminiscence caused symptoms that might include hysteria, obsession, or paranoia. When Freud came to understand that the unconscious was universal and that all people suffered from varying degrees of neurosis, he came up against the improbable consequence of his theory, the childhood uh, of his theory of childhood sexual seduction, which was that all who were neurotic had been sexually abused. This notion populated the world with a near universal quantity of perverted parents. Clearly, this could not be the case. And Freud was led, logically, to abandon his theory. On September 21st, 1897, Freud wrote to his intellectual colleague, Wilhelm Fleece, that he no longer believed in his Neurotica, his seduction theory. This letter, which has been called by Jean Laplanche, Freud's Letter of Equinox, signals the end of Freud's first attempt to write a theory of psychoanalysis. Twenty-five days later, in a letter uh, to Fleece of October 15, 1897, written after a period of intense self-analysis, Freud formulated a new hypothesis. That there is a universal event of early childhood for children to be in love with their mother and to be jealous of their father. He cites the importance of Sophocles as Oedipus rex as evidence. The play works because everyone was once a budding Oedipus and can identify with the protagonist's struggle. He reports to Fleece that he thinks the same thing might be at the bottom of Hamlet as well. Prince Hamlet delays and defers his revenge because Claudius has done exactly what Hamlet wanted to do, kill his father and bed his mother. This stimulates a profound guilt in Hamlet and causes a neurotic delay in his actions. Hamlet suffers from an Oedipus complex, and so do we all. This new formulation, which will serve as the bedrock upon which Freud will construct psychoanalysis proper, is an inversion of his earlier seduction theory. The key driver of the sexual energy is no longer the perverse parent, the other, but the perverse child, the self. Since a child's perverse project has little chance of success, he is faced with repressing his libidinal drive towards his mother. This act of repression constructs a split in the topography of subjectivity. In one place there is a conscious and a pre-conscious, and in the other there is an unconscious. Freud publishes this notion in his 1900 interpretation of dreams. Seventeen years later, reflecting back on this historical achievement, Freud announces that his discovery is the third blow to the universal narcissism of men. The first was a decentering accomplished in astronomy by Copernicus' theory of heliocentrism. The second was a decentering accomplished in biology by Darwin's theory of evolution. And the third was a decentering accomplished in psychology by Freud's psychoanalysis. <clears throat> um, in which he finds that due to the existence of the unconscious, the ego is not the master of his own house. There is, however, a problem with this formulation. Freud's psychoanalysis, refounded upon the Oedipus complex, has actually re centered, not decentered, the subject. It is not Copernican, but Ptolemaic. In a the seduction theory of the 1890s, Freud conceived of subjectivity as developed in a perverse and traumatic encounter between the self and the other. In the psychoanalysis of 1900, he reconceived it as a result of the forces inside the subject. Freud could have avoided this return to Ptolemaism by doing what he did with narcissism. He came to discover through the study of extreme cases of self-love that self-love was actually a component of all subjectivity, and that love for the self stood in dialectical relationship with love for the other. His research on case studies of sexual seduction might have led him to discover that seduction by the other is actually a component of the development of subjectivity in general as was discovered much later in the century by Jean Laplanche. Instead, the theoretical impasse led to repression in the theory of the seductive role of the other and to a return to a Ptolemaic reading of subjectivity in which the self is once again re-centered. Laplanche will call this Freud's going astray. However, like all content that has been repressed, the seductive role of the other resurfaces throughout Freud's papers on psychoanalysis. In the third essay on childhood uh, sexuality, 1905, Freud writes that, quote, a child's intercourse with anyone responsible for his care affords him an unending source of sexual excitation and satisfaction from his erotogenic zones. This is especially so uh, since the person in charge of him, who after all is as a rule his mother, herself regards him as a sexual object. These marks uh, marks of affection rouse the child's sexual drive and prepare for its late intensity. Freud writes, she is only fulfilling her task in teaching the child to love. Similarly, in Freud's 1910 essay in Leonardo da Vinci, he holds a da Vinci's mother sexually smothering kisses with a primal scene that was being covered over by his scream memory of a vulture repeatedly forcing his tail into da Vinci's mouth. Due to these going astrays, Laplanche concludes that if Freud is his own Copernicus, he is also his own Ptolemy. Freud has relapses of Copernican theory and Ptolemaic theory, alternating with resurgences and reaffirmations, which are often deepens. A central problem with both of Freud's theories is that they are one-sided, undialectical, and therefore neither are sufficient to serve in critical theory. In his 1933 New lectures, new Introductory Lectures on Psychoanalysis, Freud announces, Wo es war, soll ich werden. Es ist Kulturarbeit, etwa die Trockenliegen der Zeugelsie, where the id was, the ego should be. It is a work of culture, not unlike the draining of the Zeugelsie. This is a triumphalist statement in which the project of culture and its new curative practice psychoanalysis is to conquer the unconscious. If this were to occur, grant for a moment that it were possible, then psychoanalysis would disqualify itself as a critical theory because it would have completely conquered otherness. For Planche, this <coughs> maxim is at its root Ptolemaic. But the theory of seduction imposes the reverse or complementary maxim. Wo es war, wird, soll, muss immer noch anders sein. There, where there was the id, There will be always and already the other. By re-including the other into psychoanalysis, Jean Laplanche rehabilitates psychoanalysis as a critical theory. In a series of lectures in the 1970s, Laplanche begins to construct a new foundation for psychoanalysis with his General Theory of Primal Seduction. In this theory, subjectivity is constructed during an encounter between the infant self and the mothering other. The site of this encounter is at the skin of the infant, at the threshold. The form that subjectivity will take depends on the manner in which the other bestrides his threshold. In Laplanche's theory, the infant is not born equipped with an ego or with an unconscious. Infant sexuality does not arise spontaneously in the infant as a result of the pleasure he derives from care and feeding. Instead, All of these aspects of subjectivity are introduced to the infant by the other, by the manner in which the other crosses the infant's threshold. On the one side of the encounter is the helpless infant. He or she cannot survive without care and feeding from the other. In fact, he does not even have a sense of self enough to know that he is dying if he he were abandoned at birth. On the other side of the encounter is the adult other. This might be the mother, the father, or some other care. In fact, it might not even be an adult. What is important to understand is the functional relationship of mothering. Part of this function is feeding, part of it is cleaning and caring, and another part is touching. Much research has made it clear that humans cannot survive without touching. Touch serves as an extra uteral form of enclosure that is required for the still developing infant to thrive. Laplanche uses a methodology of psychoanalysis to analyze the event occurring at the infant's threshold in this encounter with the other. The adult care has an unconscious, and in that unconscious has repressed a perverse sexuality. When the mother breastfeeds the infant, she must do so with an erect nipple. This erection is no different neurologically in feeding than it is in sex. It serves to pull the the mother's unconscious sexual desire into the transaction. However, because in most cases she would not, could not, admit to this, she keeps that desire repressed. Yet, she delivers to the infant's oral threshold two messages, the conscious message of feeding and the unconscious message of sexual arousal. The signifier of this sexual arousal is enigmatic to both parties. The mother will not admit it to consciousness, And the infant cannot understand it because it comes from adult sexuality. Therefore, this enigmatic signifier is implanted onto the infant at his threshold. The infant struggles to translate the message, but fails to do so. Consequently, he must refuse it and repress it. But to where will he repress it? It is at this moment that the infant begins to construct a split subjectivity with a conscious and an unconscious. His unconscious is constructed from the need to have a location to repress the enigmatic signifier that has come from the other. Also at this moment, and at this location, its skin threshold, the infant begins to become conscious of the other, the one who comes in from the outside, and of another being, the one on the inside of the skin. Who is this being? The infant discovers, at his threshold, I. This is the birth of the ego. <laughs> Both the unconscious and the ego are constructed in dialectical encounter between the developing self and the other. <clears throat> Adult sexuality during breastfeeding might be surprising to some, but not to John Steinbeck. In his 1936 novel about union organizing, In Dubious Battle, a communist union organizer develops a ba- uh, delivers a baby for one of the workers' wives in a workers' encampment. This gains him the workers' respect. Throughout the novel, the woman and her newborn keep popping up in various scenes. Every time she appears, she's breastfeeding. In one scene, she reveals a secret to one of the organizers. He asks, How's the baby? Nursing it all right? She replies, Yeah. Then her face turns very red. She blurts, I like to nurse. I like it. Because it feels good. She hides her face. I hadn't ought to told you, it ain't decent, do you think? You won't tell nobody. Steinbeck's most famous novel, his 1939 Grapes of Roth, also ends with a breastfeeding scene, an allusion to Roman charity, where a young mother breastfeeds an old, starving man. Enigmatic signifiers can be implanted on the child not only through breastfeeding, but also through cleaning, especially cleaning around their genitals, and through touch in general. One mother told me recently that when she dries her young boys after a bath, she cannot resist biting their little bottoms because they are so delicious. (laughs) According to Laplanche, the implantation of adenomatic signifiers is required for the development of subjectivity. It is a general state of primal seduction that occurs between the developing self and the caring other. However. There is another, more violent, form of encounter at the subject's threshold, in which the other shoves in a deliberate and conscious sexual or violent content. This forms an indigestible block in the subject that can never be metabolized. Laplanche calls this process intromission. The difference between intromission and implantation has to do with the relationship to the threshold, Enigmatic signifiers implanted at the subject's threshold allow the subject to ask questions about the signification. The metabolism of translation set up by the enigma is key to the formation of subjectivity, which includes the source drives that are derived from untranslated material. Intromission, on the other hand, blocks this metabolism. It short circuits the differentiation of the agencies in the process of their formation. Violently intermitted foreign body, which pierces the threshold, then comes to dominate the subject's life and causes him to repeat the traumatic scene of intermission. John Fletcher uses his notion of the scenography of trauma to provide a reading of Hamlet through an analysis of the violent intermission by the ghost. While Freud reads Hamlet's delay through the Ptolemaic lens of his Oedipus complex, Fletcher's Copernican reading situates the Hamlet question in the encounter between the prince and his father. Hamlet, king Hamlet, as Ghost, says to his son that he could freeze his blood and harrow up his soul with a horrible tale, but he won't tell him. Then he proceeds to tell him. "List, oh list!" The king intromits the primal scene of his killing by Claudius. Uh, into Hamlet's ears. He then blocks up the threshold with the imperative that Hamlet must kill Claudius in revenge. In this scenography of trauma, intermitted by the ghostly other, it is this scenography of trauma, intermitted by the ghostly other, that incapacitates Hamlet, who is then left unable to kill Claudius, and only able to circulate the trauma to the rest of the court, leaving most of them dead. Corolanus and The Merchant of Venice are plays driven by the death drive. A Laplanchian reading of these plays locates the construction of their death drive in the manner of the encounter between the self and the other at the threshold of two central characters, Caius Martius and Shylock. Freud's notion of the death drive is notoriously problematic and will not serve by itself as a critical approach to read these plays. Laplanche conceptualizes the death drive as a regime within the field of the sexual. In psychoanalysis, there's only one economy, that of the libido. Freud never postulates a distrudo. Instead, the death drive results from the violent intromission by the other across the threshold of the self. Dominic Scarfoni writes about the two different encounters at the skin of the self. Implantation of the enigmatic signifier from the other sets up a hollowed-out space a negation or loss that serves as a source for the subject's drive to translate the compromised message. In this transmission, uh, for example, messages that will form the superego, the implanted message starts the formation of a sur moi en cru, hollowed out superego, inviting the child as translator to make for himself a morality in relation to which he keeps a certain freedom of maneuver, and especially the freedom to fantasize the risks incurred in the event of a breach of that morality. Mm -hmm. About intromission, the violent intrusion past the threshold, Scarfoni writes that it is no longer a violence of the message itself, but a violence of the transmitter of the message. No longer the enigma in itself, but rather the prohibition of translation that it carries in parallel. The message here is that there are things about which the future psychotic is not allowed to exercise his autonomous <coughs> thinking. The surmoi and plane, or filled-in superego, would be what is strongest in a psychotic ego. It will always be alien, but, absent, but not absent. It would be the object without a hole, without a fault, not allowing for any approach, from any angle whatsoever, no hollow in the object, no loss or absence, rather a constraining, invading presence. It is this malign positivity that forms the death drive. It is a near-total alienation at the core of the being, a psychotic versachlitum, reification, where the machine that was once a subject or in the case of infantile intermission, that was never formed into a subject, can do nothing but circulate the scene of trauma that was intermitted into it. John Fletcher writes that, quote, the death work involves a process of transmission between people that circulates throughout an ever-widening circle, a social ecology of death drive. The circulation is visible in Hamlet, Alanis and some of E.T.A. Hoffman's novels such as uh, Mademoiselle de Scudery and The Sandman, where poison and murder circulate through Paris mm-hmm. and a parental myth of the castrating sandman is compulsively repeated, respectively. It is also visible in the circulation of the death game played by terrorists and counter-terrorists in our times. Differences in the social ecology of the life dive and the death dive can be read in three of Caius Marsh's libidinal investments, his wife, his mother, and his martial rival. When Valeria visits Marcius' mother, uh, Volumnia, and his wife, Virgilia, she invites them to a ladies' day out. Virgilia replies, No, good madam, I will not out of doors. I will not over the threshold till my lord return from the wars. All of Virgilia's lines in the play indicate that she loves Caius Marcius. She blanches at any mention that he might be wounded and worries that he might die in the war. In psychoanalytic economic terms, she cathex libido, life, and love energy across his threshold into his self. While he is absent from her, and especially since he might not return alive, Virgilia's libido is set down firmly on the inside of their domestic threshold. Valeria likens Virgilia to Penelope. In an essay on translation and sublimation by John Fletcher, he uses Penelope's story to discuss the translation that which occurs at the <laughs> threshold of the self. He writes that, quote, Penelope's reweaving is an exemplary fable of the work of translation. Translation, which results in sublimation, is not cutting ties to a lost or abandoned object, but as with Penelope, is a reweaving of them anew. Helia sits sewing and waiting for her other in love to return from the wars. Her translation project is to figure out the enigma of his love for her, and like the linguistic translator, who must drop enigmatic secondary meanings from the translation in the constant process of unification, Vigilia sows and sows, reweaving her understanding of her marriage. However, she will not successfully translate Caius Marsha's enigmatic messages that approach her threshold, what should be his love for her, for not even understands them, and that will lead to his tragic fall at the end. While Vihilia wishes for Caius Martius to return alive to love her, his mother desires the opposite. Volumnia says, If my son were my husband, I should freely rejoice in that absence wherein he won honor than in the embracements of his bed, where he show most love. When yet he was but tender-bodied and only only son of my womb, when youth with comeliness plucked all gaze his way, when for a day of kings entreaties a mother should not sell him for an hour from her beholding, I, considering how honor would become such a person, that it was no better than uh, picture-like to hang by the wall, if renown made it not store, was pleased to let him seek danger, where he was like to find fame, to cruel war I sent him, From whence he returned, his brows bound with oak. Had I a dozen sons, each in my love alike, and none less dear than thine and my good marshes, I'd rather have eleven die nobly for their country than one voluptuously surfeit out of action. And then in a telling inclusion of breastfeeding, Bolemnia says, The breasts of Hecuba when she did suckle Hector, looked not lovelier than Hector's forehead when it spurt forth blood at Grecian sword contending. She makes it clear from where and how Caius Martius derived his martial prowess. She reminds him, thy valiance was mine, thou suckedest from me. This is not the only place in Shakespeare's plays where he uses breastfeeding in a scene that depicts the death drive. Lady Macbeth says to her husband, who is reluctant to kill du- Duncan, I have given suck." And know how tender it is to love the babe that milks me. I would, while it was smiling in my face, have plucked the nipple from his boneless gums and dashed his brains out, had I so sworn as you have to do this. We can guess at how Marcius was raised by Volumnia. When Valeria asks Virgilia how her little son is, Volumnia says that he had rather see the swords uh, and hear a drum than look upon his school manner. This prompts Valeria to tell the story of when she saw Marcius' son, Marcius Jr., Mammicking a golden butterfly with his teeth. Volumnia identifies this as one of Marcius Sr.'s moods. Volumnia's sexualized death drive is evident. After hearing that Caius Marcius is wounded, Volumnia exclaims, Oh, he is wounded! I thank the gods for it! Then she meticulously details and recounts his wounds. She displays an enmeshment with the contours of his body. Volumnia is Mother War, she is Rome the wolf that suckled Romulus and Remus, intromitting a violence into them that resulted in the first killing. Romulus kills Remus. It is on the foundation of this traumatic primal scene that Romulus founds Rome. Volumnia transmits the nationalist imperative into Caius Martius, filling him with a surmoi in plain, a filled-in superego that reifies him into a killing machine. When she takes back this intromission at the end, disowning him to the Volscians. Caius Martius is undone, unbound, a dead man walking. Okay, I gotta do of a <clears> video. <throat> um, Caius Martius's death drive, his compulsion to repeat the scene of trauma intramitted into him by Mother War, cannot sponsor his love for Vahilia. She is instead his gracious silence. Caius Martius can only exchange a sexualized death drive with another warrior his compulsive rival, and when they meet in Voces, after Caius Marcius's exile <coughs> and consequent defection, Ophidius gushes, but that I see thee here, thou noble thing, more dances my rapt heart than when I first my wedded mistress saw, stride my threshold. Then he reveals his dreams about Marcius, we have been down together in my sleep, unbuckling hems, fisting each other's throat, and waked half-dead with nothing. One of the serving men reports that Alphidius himself makes a mistress of Caius Martius. Scholars have wondered if this depicts a homosexual love between Martius and Alphidius, but that would assume that they could affect love-drive libido across each other's threshold, and this is clearly not depicted in their actions towards each other, nor in the outcome at the end of the play. Instead, the seeming contradiction of these lines is made clear by reading them through Laplanche's and Fletcher's notion of the circulation of a sexualized death drive a compulsion to repeat the intermitted scene of trauma. Alphidius declares that he is more excited, more rapt, in the sense of the word that means captured, by seeing Caius Marcius's death libido at his threshold than by seeing his new lover's love or life libido. After Alphidius kills him in the final scene, he says that his rage is gone. He is struck with sorrow. He cannot continue his compulsion to repeat the scene of trauma, his death trauma. And I'll stop there. I have stuff on the Merchant of Venice, but I'm out of time.